Hi there, we continue to study William Waldron's Making Sense of Mind Only, which is an overview of Yogacara philosophy and an attempt to contextualize it within the history of Buddhist thought. Uh, in this episode, we look at chapter two of the book, which examines the interdependent nature of perception and experience as a whole, as understood in early Buddhism. We explore how self and world are interconnected. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so the the reading that we're looking at today is from chapter two in um, William Waldron's Making Sense of Mind Only. And the name of this chapter is Cognitive Processes in Early Buddhism. So in this chapter, he is... um, as he did in the first chapter, is laying the groundwork, I think, for the continuity that one finds between the Pali Canon um, and the later Mahayana um, works, especially the Yogacara in the Yogacara school. So he's once again um, laying laying down a, a framework, which uh, which I'm assuming he's going to build on when he begins talking about the Yogacara school proper and the the sections of this of this particular chapter he has he has a section on um, um the 12 limbs of dependent arising um then the dependent arising of self and world and then two a couple of interesting sections one is how objects are constructed and how subjects are constructed so this is kind of laying the the um laying the framework i suppose for for the problematization of subject object dualism um and also builds upon what he what he said in chapter one um about what did he call it the uh the um the cartesian theater was that was that the name the name yeah. of yeah. yes challenging the cartesian theater so um so in this in this chapter he's i, I suppose showing how that theater is constructed by showing how it is that that our mind taking sense impressions creates um, a narrative about objects outside of ourselves and then uh, similar kinds of narratives about ourselves and and there are internal experiences um and then that leads him to um talking about uh anushaya which you know which he translates the unconscious habitual tendencies the, the tendency the, the tendencies to uh, to act in, in various ways especially unskillful ways and then and then uh, then there's a section on which he calls seeing through the magic show um, and, and all of these are uh, all of these different sections he has numerous quotations from Majjhimi Nikaya, Sutta Nipata, um, the Sanyutta Nikaya. I think he draws more on those than, than other parts of the Pali Canon. So that's a kind of an overview of what this what this chapter is is about. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that? Um, well, I think that's a, a great overview. Um, yeah, I guess just some initial impressions. I was very interested in the sources that he was using uh, from the Pali Canon, as you mentioned, particularly from the Samyutta Nikaya. I think there was also some stuff from the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, and it made me want to review some of those sources, which I, I hope I will um, over time. Um, yeah, I mean, some, some of it was quite familiar and some of it uh, less familiar. So the, the section on the, the 12 links, I didn't really pay much attention to that. 
Um, uh, and then the first section that I really started looking at was the dependent arising of self and world, which I found interesting. Um, and the way that he talked about that seemed quite interesting. He also uh, uh, talks about different words to do with mind uh, and tries to give definitions. So he, he introduces the words chitta, manas, and vijnana. Right. And chitta, as we know, he sort of draws in more the the aspect to do with the heart when he talks about that uh, and manas which often is translated as mind he translates as mentation uh, which i quite liked because it suggests it's more like process than uh, than than a thing uh, and then vijnana well he, he describes as as cognitive awareness uh, to be honest i have I have difficulties distinguishing, and maybe we can get into this more, between uh, vijnana and samnya, uh, or how they're differentiated, because he says that, um, uh, what does he say? Um, well, that the cognitive awareness or vijnana is associated with seeing objects, but then that would seem to automatically imply samnya. It would seem, I, I don't know how you differentiate between the two. Um, you know the, 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 those terms um, both, of course, have have um, the root nya to know, which is cognate actually with with the English word uh, know. Um, but he, when he's talking about the kind of the etymology of these words, or the um, he says at some point, is it in this section? Not there's a section called a note on terminology, mind, thought, and consciousness. Yes. It's on page 50 and um and 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 on that page he talks about vijnana typically translated as consciousness but in some contexts cognitive awareness is more precise vijnana as consciousness refers to the sentience that is said to persist from one life to the next as long as one remains in the cycle of rebirth so that that's vijnana as it appears in um pratitya samutpada and in, in the right. The twelve links. But he, um, I mean, he seems to deconstruct that as a possibility uh, right. because that. Well, I I understood that one of the main thrusts of the um, of the, of this chapter was that consciousness cannot be spoken of independently of co the cognized, um, uh, and that they're they're really rather just uh, two poles of of a uh, of experience, if you like. So you can't have or it doesn't make sense to talk about consciousness independently of something being cognized. And similarly, it doesn't make sense to talk about the cognized independently of its being cognized. So it doesn't make sense to talk about objects independently of them being perceived. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and I, th I think he's, he's setting the stage for um, saying that generally speaking within Buddhism, there's not such a thing as just consciousness as such, you know, pure, right. pure, pure awareness right. um, uh, th that, that doesn't have any, any content, um, which I suppose differentiates it from certain ways of looking at Atman in other schools of you know, in the Brahmanical schools, um, is sometimes described as a, as a as a kind of the principle of consciousness, independent of any content to the consciousness. It's just pure consciousness as such. So I think I think um, Waldron may may be trying hinting that 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 kind of that kind of um, idea of consciousness isn't found in in most score, uh, schools of Buddhism. Right. 
Yeah, so just below that, where he has the subheading, uh, so this is still on page 50, uh, the cognitive process, uh, he makes the point, uh, the noun mind is an easy and perhaps unavoidable shorthand to refer to multiple cognitive or mental processes. But we need to be careful not to reify it. I, I thought this was quite central. Right. Uh, in dynamic processes as if they were static things. Right. And then a little bit further on, he's, uh, or he gives a quote from the Samyutinikaya, dependent upon the eye and visible form, visual awareness arises. So this is what I said before, that, that, uh, that, yeah, that they're, they're interdependent, if you like, the, 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 the eye and visible, well, so visual awareness, I guess, would be a kind of consciousness. Right. Uh, and that arises dependent upon having the sense organ, uh, that is the eye, and a form that that, that organ perceives. But then he, then he says, let's look at this closely. Cognitive awareness here is not a faculty that acts. It is an event, a process that, it, that occurs independent on certain conditions. So what I took him to be trying to say is that there isn't you don't just have sort of consciousness that's sort of waiting there ready to perceive stuff uh actually what we we can't what consciousness is is simply an event of consciousness a conscious event and we can't say any more than that right you you were um said something earlier about the difference between vidyana and sagna and um one one way i i remember at some point he was talking about the importance of the um prefix v in vidyana and um i can't find what he said about it but yeah, wasn't was it to do with dividing or something sorry was it to do with dividing the v bit it is yeah it is it is to do with with dividing and the usual explanation that you that for that term that that comes up in abhidharma is that the the division is to emphasize that each of these kinds of awareness comes in through a discrete channel of a, a discrete sense organ so that the um, you know the eye perceives colors and shapes and the ear perceives sounds and and uh, you don't have the eye perceiving sounds so each of the kinds of um, stimuli of, of these sense organs is, is different. Uh, and then what Sanya does is it um, synthesizes, it puts, it puts together. Um, so for example, if you have, if you're holding a, um, an object that we call an apple in your hand, this is kind of a Kantian thing is that, you know, you see the color, you see the shape, you feel the, the uh, tactile sensations in your hand. If you take a bite of it, you feel more tactile sensations of the, the crispness of the fruit and then the taste. And so all of these different um, sense organs are providing information which which Sanya then puts together as a single object. I think we'll see a little bit more of that maybe in, in the section on how objects are created. So that, that sounds so that sounds what you've said there sounds quite good in terms of trying to make sense of what Sanya is and what it does. Right. But it doesn't, to me, help to make sense of uh, Vijnana because Vijnana is norm. well, saying the five skandhas is considered a category. Uh, you referred to the sense, um, the senses. So you could talk about the um, eye consciousness without talking about 
vinyana why do you need to you know why do you need the concept of vinyana in other words it seems to suggest i mean maybe i've misunderstood this but it seems to suggest that there's some kind of perceiver who who uh, is the experiencer of all of the different sense doors uh, or isn't it that I'm, I'm trying to work out what what function it serves the idea of vijnana um, because you know you mentioned the individual senses so you could just stick with that and why do you need to talk about vijnana then well i i think like like almost everything um that the buddhists talk about they, they're using a, a general a general category so you can think of vijnana as as a generic as a as a genus and then uh, that has six species you know so so there's okay you know, one type of consciousness that, that's done through the eyes, another that's done through the ears, another through the tongue. So it's kind of perceiving, really. Right, right. Um, yeah, and, and then it can be uh, analyzed into different kinds of perceiving. Uh, there are different kinds of perceiving. So there's uh, smelling, touching, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then what you're saying is that then um, Samya is the process of sort of working up uh, those percepts, I guess, uh, yeah. into or, some kind of meaningful whole. Some, some philosophers uh, make a distinction between perceiving and sensing. And so uh, yeah. if, if you follow that, that way of talking about um, cognition, then, then you could say that um, sensing is the vinyana are, are, are six different right. kinds of sensing okay. yeah. and then perception which is which is creating is actually more of a construction right. of putting making sense of the senses right. making sense sense of the sense data um having a narrative about them that that's what perception does right um, okay so vinyana could be sensing yeah I, yeah, something like that. It's interesting, it has quite a different tone to it than than rendering it as consciousness. Yeah, which is and, and, how how it's rendered into English. Because you know, if you refer to it as consciousness, kind of automatically, I start to think that consciousness is kind of the subject, right? Uh, who then you know experiences everything. Whereas if you right. talk about it as sensing, it's kind of much more phenomenological, um, right? Yeah. And immediate as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think that, um, as you said earlier, what, what, what Waldron does make pretty clear is that both Vijnana and Sagna, both of those are um, complex processes that are, that, that uh, are dependent on conditions. And, 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 and if those conditions are absent, then the, um, you know, the process doesn't occur. Yeah. If, if there, a, if, a little bit further on in this same section, um, so where he's, he's talked about, cogn so cognitive awareness seems to be his translation of Vijnana. Right. I like your translation of sensing, it seems a lot more um, immediate. Cognitive awareness sounds quite kind of a bit too philosophical for me. But anyway, sensing sounds good. But then he goes anyway, he goes on to talk about contact. And he says, the early texts typically define contact not as a strictly sequential process, but as a single event. Contact is the meeting of the eye, visible form, and visual awareness. Yeah, so you've got the, the sense organ, I guess. You've got the uh, the sense object, which is the visible form, and you've got sensing, which is the, the visual 
awareness. Right. Uh, but I think what I wanted to mention was that actually what you've got is this is the sensing event is what you've got. And this way of talking about it is simply a way of trying to analyze that event. Then they're not real. Right. Uh, or, or, or at least they're not separate, let's say. Um, so uh so well because that's what he seems to go on to say say afterwards that you can't separate out the 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 sensing event uh from the eye the visible form and visual awareness so it's not that we there is this visual awareness i don't know just sitting there waiting for some visual event to take place uh visual awareness only makes sense in relation to being aware of something yeah uh, so i'm being tentative and i'm wondering you know you can tell me that this is wrong um, and that i'm an idiot you can, well we know that but anyway what do you what do you think about that <laughs> I, what, did, did, um, I have not read um Lake often Johnson, uh, whom he refers to a number of times in in his book, but he, he talks about um, he he has a quotation on page fifty two, right, where he says color. Uh, he's he's quoting Lake often Johnson. Yeah. Um, color concepts are interactional. They arise from the interactions of our bodies, our brains, the reflective properties of objects, and electromagnetic radiation. Colors are not objective. There is in the grass or the sky no greenness or blueness, independent of retinas, color cones, neural circuitry, and brains, nor are colors purely subjective. They are neither a figment of our imagination nor spontaneous creations of our brains. Color is a function of the world and our biology interacting. That's quite um, mysterious, isn't it? Yeah, and, and uh, I just I just finished reading a, um, a book by, I, I think he's a, a journalist, a, a kind of a journalist of science. His name is uh, Young. Y-O-N-G, a Chinese, the Chinese name, and um, Ed Young, and it's called An Immense World, and it's about the different sense faculties that different kinds of animals have, um, and he, he, he talks a lot about, about this kind of thing, how the, the neural circuitry in a, in a, um, uh, you know, a bee or a bat is so different from the circuitry and in a human being that that we really cannot um, well we can't even imagine what it's like to to have to be a bat <laughs> you know there's that that famous famous article what's it like to be a bat um, and and he 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 makes this the same kind of a point it's it's almost like that was it who who is who is the or, originator of the the conundrum that everybody quotes you know if nobody if if there's nobody in the forest uh when the tree falls oh, yeah there's no sound right is it berkeley how uh, would they go back further than that yeah um i'm thinking you know john locke said similar kinds of yeah. things i think that, right. that, that in other words what you have is is uh you may have vibrations in the air um you know when a tree falls in the forest then there'll be a lot of you know vibrations in the air but if there's not a, um a sense organ that receives those vibrations and then a brain that interprets them as a sound then then there's no sound there are just vibrations and similarly if there there may be you know there there will be um um what is he calling calling them here um reflective properties electromagnetic radiation 
so there, you know, there will be uh, electromagnetic radiation of various frequencies, but unless there's a, an I, an E-Y-E, <laughs> that, that um, transmits, that receives those vibrations and, and, and a brain that interprets them, a neural circuitry that interprets them, then there's no such thing, then there's no such thing as, as color. Um, so that so that color is a is a uh, as 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 Lakoff and Johnson put it a function of the world and our biology interacting is a very interesting way of, of putting it and and I you know of course I suppose that also means or what that also means is that color is well, I, I was going to say a human centered uh, concept but I'm assuming that some other animals can see color uh, maybe they don't see it in the same way. Uh, but they can see color like um, bulls obviously can uh, they seem to respond to uh, red don't they um, right and 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 most insects um and and actually a lot of other kinds of animal um have in their eyes receptors for ultraviolet light uh and in some cases for um infrared infrared radiation so that they can they, you know um birds are, are, are uh, almost all birds have an ability to perceive ultraviolet so that when they look at a flower, we, we might see a, a, a unicolored flower, a, a white flower or a yellow flower, but a bird um, will also pick up reflections in the ultraviolet range. And so when a bird looks at what, what we see as a yellow flower, they see a multicolored flower. Wow. That, that it's very difficult and and uh, ins insects are have um very um they they have receptors in their eyes that are sensitive to wavelengths that, that uh, we we can't perceive in any way at all we can't sense them in any way at all yeah and then of course um well hummingbirds and a number a number of birds but hummingbirds and uh you know you some of these migratory species that that fly thousands of miles and they might they migrate um they are sensitive to um to the magnetic field that's omnipresent around the world i mean everywhere in the world you go there's a magnetic field well we we can't sense those with our bodies at all um we, you know we we have to have instruments like compasses or something like that to let us know about a about a, um, a magnetic field so this is how birds you know one of the ways that they migrate they just wait for for a certain alignment of the magnetic field and then they follow that and they um they end up in the right place I mean, it's it's really very difficult for us to even understand how that happens but um, yeah, one, of the things, one of the things that, that Jung said that really really struck me was that he said there there is no wavelength that corresponds to the color purple there are wavelengths that correspond to red and and to um blue but the the color purple is something that the brain creates by taking um the we we have we have um nerve endings in the eye rods and cones and 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 uh some of them are are sensitive to to red light some some sensitive to blue and when both of those are triggered the brain creates the color purple so that the color purple you could say that it just it just doesn't exist in nature it only exists as a as a function of 
um, of the world and our, our biology interacting, as Lake Often Johnson put it. And I don't think, you know, I, I think that it's it's largely accidental in a way that that um, that it turns out that the Buddhists were really on the right track. They had no idea about what the brain or neural circuitry or color cones or retinas or any, anything like that. But they somehow uh, in, in intuitively got it right that that the world of experience is an interactive process between things in the external, you know, outside the human body and things inside the human body. Mm. And they're, they're in, in the um, right after that, that quotation of Lakoff and Johnson, um, this was on page 52, there's a paragraph that starts, the interactive view is a very different way, a radically ecological way of understanding our being in the world, where relational process is primary and basic, and ontological separation is secondary and contrived. That's a very interesting way of putting this. And uh, and the, the end of that, well, I'll, I'll just continue. It's easy to overlook the significance of this perspective because it runs so counter to our deeply implicit sense that we are independently existing subjects that encounter independently existing objects and only then cognize them, the cognition, the Cartesian theater. It's important to keep these analyses in mind when we examine Yogacara views, which similarly argue that the subject and object are only known, are only sensible in relation to each other. So the, you know, here's, here's where he's explicitly setting the stage between this kind of polycanon, polycanonical way of looking at uh, cognition and, and what we're going to encounter in the Yogacara um, literature. So that's a fairly, fairly rich analysis, I think. Uh, I, I've I found it that way. Uh, I'm kind of, uh, is I'm finding it, or I found it and find it interesting. Uh, and what I'm struggling to do is to bring that in relationship to Buddhist practice or, or um, Buddhist objectives. Because to me, well, what he's done is, well, present quite a sophisticated, if you like, model of uh, perception. Right. Um, and I guess I, I find myself thinking, okay, so what? Um, what how did how how is it going to help me uh, getting my head around his uh, his way of talking about things? Um, yeah, and, and I, I suppose I suppose the answer to that is is partly that um, through the process of meditation and through the process of paying attention to our experience, we can become increasingly aware that, um, to put it in a kind of a cliche way, things are not as they seem to be, you know, that um, the, 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 the way that we are conditioned to see, to analyze our experience is to see, um, you know, something like a fixed subject and fixed objects that are, that are outside the body. And to think that, that what uh, experience is, is simply um, um, the fixed subject understanding as they really are the external world. And I think he's trying to say it's not quite that, it's not quite that that simple. And insofar as seeing things as they, as they are, understanding our experience as it is, is a way in which we can avoid having um, having particular kinds of delusion that, that end up being um, detrimental to our to the project of being happy or being being 
being contented in the world. So, um, uh, I don't know, an example of, so an example of that delusion would be something like, I'm always going to be as I am now. Um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that the, I, I think the idea is that, that as you become more, more habituated to understanding things as processes that take place only when certain conditions are present, that that um, that understanding and things that that way is a corrective to understanding ourselves as as being fixed always as you know seeing ourselves as 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 being um, immutable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think you you hit the, the nail on the head when you talked about the possibility of of change. Um, if insofar as there's a tendency to see ourselves as somehow fixed, immutable subjects that are just taking in the world, um, we may we, we may be perfectly comfortable with the idea that the world is always changing. I mean, the seasons change and um, things decompose and die and all you know, we're, we're quite comfortable with that happening in the objective world but we're much less inclined to see ourselves as things that are also changing as part of the world of change mm. yeah although i think people will often um adopt a narrative that says that they can grow and change i mean that's very much the zeitgeist i would say um you know we're, we're all about personal growth and development and all right. of that kind thing uh that's that language is widely used i mean not just within religious um context but in any context really uh, people talk about developing themselves um yeah. so, so that language is there but but he, but at the same time it would seem to me that doesn't mean people are more enlightened than they were yeah i i think uh, one way that I that I've often um, a question that, that that I've had throughout much of my life is is um, um, well to put it in a very in a very crude way um, what what does Buddhist analysis of of experience have to tell us that we don't already know by just being in the twenty first century right because as you say this is this kind of talk of, of development and change and improvement and all of these things, progress. I mean, it's very much part of the uh, of the uh, zeitgeist of post-European enlightenment thinking. Um, and I suppose you could say that there's a sense in which post-enlightenment, you know, post-European enlightenment has way of looking at the world has caught up with the way that Buddhists were seeing it much earlier. Um, so to get back to your original question, um, I'm really not sure um, that all of this way of looking at, at our experience and the, the interrelation between the neural construction of the of biological construction and the electromagnetic world. I'm not sure that that um, way of looking at things has an advantage over, um, has an advantage for, for, the, for the Buddhist project that can't be found in other ways of, of analyzing our experience. Yeah, I mean, I think, what, what I find with, uh, sorry to interrupt, what I find with, say, well, so what I see Waldron to be doing is basically saying there's a way that people normally think about things right. and that's wrong. And there's this way of talking about things that's right. Uh, and 
uh, and I find myself thinking, well, is it right? And it, and right for what? Uh, and and yeah, where does it actually get us? Um, other than some kind of shift in intellectual perspective, if you like, in terms of how we think about the construction or the emergence of, of the human being. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, does it actually help us at an ethical level uh, that much? Does it does it have implications for that? Um, and uh, there was something else that I wanted to mention, which has slipped my mind, but it will come back. Well, you know, I, I think I think what you could say is that um, the answer to that last question you asked is 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 clearly no, because there have been people who have made what we could, you know, who have been remarkably um, good models for ethical behavior, whose worldview was not anything like this that 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 uh, that Waldron is putting forward. Um, or that Lakoff and Johnson are putting forward. I mean, presumably, um, all of all of the Buddhist tradition before the 20th century, you know, didn't didn't think in in, in exactly this this uh, this way that that Waldron is 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 putting forward. Uh, and and yet they seem they, they 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 were they were among those people very good. Um, moral exemplars and people yeah, it's, it's bringing me back to shantideva really um yeah. and i mean shantideva's arguments or they seem to be based more on empathy right. rather than on some ontological argument um right. uh, so you know you'll say something like you know everybody experience is suffering just like me Right. Why do I consider my suffering to be more important than theirs? Um, so it's kind of an invitation to recognize uh, through the imagination that other people are kind of similar to you. I mean, we don't know whether they're the same, but basically they have similar feelings, they have similar fears, and they experience uh, suffering just like I do. And therefore, I should be uh, disposed to alleviate their suffering just as much as I should be interested in alleviating my own suffering uh and that i don't know that sort of argument doesn't seem to require this level of um kind of neurological or whatever um biological sophistication no um I, no I, it doesn't require it I, I i think i think that what what uh what waldron is Part of what, what Waldron's um, project is, I think, is to show that there is, for, the, for people who do um, think in this neurological, psychological, um, scientific way, that the, the way that they see the world is really not so different from how, um, in, in important ways, it's not so different from how people who, who were following the Pali Canon or, or later people who were following Yogacara saw the world. So that, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, Part of what he may be doing is that if you do see the world in this way, the 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 way that Lakoff and Johnson see it, for example, if you do see the world in this way, then um, there's not going to be a jarring discontinuity between that way of seeing the world and and what you read in in classical Buddhist texts. Um, um, okay, I mean that's so that's fair enough, and that's that's good. Uh, again, my my question is, but. What does this have to do with the fundamental Buddhist aspiration, which is to um, uh, to overcome suffering? Um, and maybe that's going to come later. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I've, I, um, 
Let's, let me think. So, so for instance, um, it, it's often said, I think people often say something like, this is what I was going to say earlier. And I found myself saying it on, on the weekend and I found myself wondering whether I believe what I was saying. <laughs> but people often say something like, so we're not really separate from one another. Uh, and that, and that, it, that argument is kind of used to mean that because of that, we should kind of care about other people um, and, you know, kind of take into account their needs and so on. And then I found myself thinking, but, but we are separate from one another as well. Uh, so, and, and it's like, I think what I'm driving at is that this, you know, so we're not really separate from one another, to my mind, kind of invites what, what to me can seem like a kind of trivial uh, and reductive kind of oneness that is not real, uh, that it's just a sort of a platitude, if you like, um, that, you know, we're all one, whatever that is supposed to mean, uh, and therefore we should all love each other uh, and, all, all, and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, and, I, uh, and like I say, I, I found that sort of idea coming up and thinking, is that right? Is that really what how the situation? And and isn't it isn't actually part of the situation more that we're actually inevitably apart as well? So I I can never I cannot enter your mind. I cannot know what all your, your all that you're thinking and feeling. Uh, and most of what I do know or can know or think I know, depends upon the activation of my imagination rather than the capacity to enter your mind. So I kind right. of imagine what you feel like, partly maybe because of things that you tell me, uh, but also it requires a lot of um, active imagining on my part. And that's where, so I'm suggesting that's a lot of, a lot of where the work comes in. So it's not, it's not that, okay, where where we're, we're one and therefore that means it's easy for me to know to know what you feel and connect with that uh in part we are separate i'm gonna i'm saying that for now we can uh and because of that i need to engage in a lot of Im imaginative strategies to sort of overcome the tendency or, or to overcome that basically to, to to bridge that gap and to start to value let's say, your subjectivity in the way that I might value my own. Um, mm -hmm. So this is kind of empathy, I guess. Well, I think coming back to, to Shantideva, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I don't think Shantideva would, would, would find the, you know, that, that kind of cliche, we're all one, particularly helpful. Um, but the way, but, but, what what he does say is that there's there's a there's that we all have um we all have a desire to be contented and free of free of pain and suffering um presumably that's true and and it, and it is it is a presumption i mean it, it, may very well be that there are there are um deeply masochistic people who who don't want to be happy at all right <laughs> i mean i, I I've I've known people who've actually argued that who have actually who have actually said that they're you know they 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 will point to certain kinds of people that you know um, point to the behavior of some somebody that that both they know and that I know and they might say of them that person just isn't happy unless they're unless they're unhappy you <laughs> um, know they, they just seem to be constantly inviting calamity upon themselves and and when everything is going smoothly they just are looking for a way to be miserable. And um, 
but but that that aside, I mean, you could still say, as Shanti Deva would insist, that that is their way of finding contentment in the world. Um, and it and it, it you know, I mean, saying that we're all one is a kind of an ontological s- statement that, to me, is is just meaningless and and not at all helpful. But to saying that we all that we're all subject to the same conditions uh, or to similar conditions, and that um, some people are subjected to conditions that um, that we ourselves are have not been subjected to. I mean, I've never been subjected to to uh, abject poverty. I've never been subjected to. Uh, I've never been a victim of of racism or anything like that. So there are experiences that are common in the world that are not part of my world view i mean they're not part of my world of experience but um that's not as important as the more fundamental fact that shantideva points out which is that we all would like to be able to live without um the kind of friction that causes that causes this um anguish and and pain and suffering yeah um yeah, I, I mean, in the on the retreat, I did say something like we're interconnected, and particularly what I meant by that is that our actions have implications for one another. Um, so certainly, in that sense, we're not completely isolated, uh, because my actions, I would say, and uh, probably my speech, possibly even my thoughts, but anyway, uh, they are likely, or they can have an impact on you. Uh, they can influence what you're thinking and what you're feeling uh, vice versa Uh, and so what that means is that in the one sense that means that we need to be quite responsible in relation to what we do knowing that that is likely to impact on others but also we also need to be we also need to recognize that our own state of mind our own way of thinking isn't just created internally Mm. um it's actually informed by uh conditions so i guess this is bringing us a bit back to you know some of the things that waldron is saying uh that we're not just these sort of independent entities that construct a worldview um the way that we see feel think is strongly informed by conditions that we're exposed to uh, like our family our culture right and so on Uh, And that's important and relevant because if you want to change it, then that also means thinking about the conditions that are needed to change it or or the conditions that support the way that we currently see things. So I can see a lot of value in all of that. That's very pragmatic and and practical for sure well some, something else that i that i think uh, that that uh, one a strain that one finds in a number of buddhist texts is is the importance of um of not of not being judgmental there's a there's a difference between having judgment and being judgmental i mean being so being judgmental in the sense that that term is usually used in english is is uh being unnecessarily negative in one's assessment of somebody else's behavior way of being and without taking into consideration that their way of behaving may be influenced by kinds of experience that we ourselves have not had um and and to to me that that opens up uh, the possibility of compassion in in a way that 
I mean, for for example, if if um, let's take you know the example of someone who's who's a um, a drug addict or a, an alcoholic or something like that. One way of looking at a person like that is, well, they've just made made the choice to be that way, um, and and they shouldn't have made that choice, and they're suffering, and it's their own their own damn fault, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's not showing very much sympathy at all. Another way of looking at that is that they are conditioned by things that, you know, we're fortunate enough not to be conditioned in the same way. They may have a biological underpinning that we don't have, or, you know, they have had traumatic experiences that we haven't had. And, and, and that enables us to, to look at them in a, in a very, um, in a in much more sympathetic way, um, which doesn't mean that we just have to say, oh, well, they're, they're just, you know, they're just alcoholics and there's nothing to be done about it. But it gives us a, a way of actually trying to work with um, with the conditions that they have, helping them understand their own conditions. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that, that what happens with me a lot uh, in the kind of example that you give is a kind of moral superiority. Um, so instead of uh, so for instance i could recognize that somebody say is an alcoholic and based on their alcoholism they're engaging in destructive behavior uh towards themselves and others and i could think they should not do that right or they must not do that so that's fine um to set those boundaries but then what usually follows or, or what is usually part of that is some kind of um yeah, some kind of moral condemnation, but also a kind of superiority as well. Um, right. So like, I'm better than them, uh, and they're a bad person, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, how, and even things like, how could they possibly act like that? That yeah. uh, I actually found, I, I caught myself in an example of that not long ago, uh, where somebody was telling me about the, the conduct of somebody a particular kind of conduct uh, that they'd kept secret. And I found myself sort of responding with a certain kind of moral outrage, if you like, uh, and yeah, kind of moral superiority. And afterwards I found myself thinking, oh, why did I, why did I do that? Why didn't I just say something like, oh yeah, that was, that was inappropriate that they didn't disclose that and that needs to be addressed or, or something mm. like that. That was a kind of, how is it possible that somebody could do, you know, right. behave that way? Uh, and that would seem to imply that I never behave in that kind of way. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, and so I found myself thinking, oh, there's a kind of, what would it be? A building of oneself up, if you like, in relation to the, the moral failing of somebody else, you know. Um, and there's clearly a kind of investment there in terms of, yeah, I'm such a good person. I would never do anything like that. Uh, and I'm not sure that's actually even true. I mean, may, maybe not in such an extreme way, maybe more subtle examples, but uh, I realized that my condemnation wasn't at all based in any kind of empathy or sense of understanding of why the person might have acted in that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, 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 the term um, manas, which with a long A, not Manas has a, uh, which means mind as a short a, but manas is is often translated as as um, arrogant, pride or arrogance, and um, and it's it's said in in a number of places in Buddhist texts that the definition of manas is thinking of yourself as superior to another, or seeing yourself as inferior to another, or seeing yourself as equal to another. <laughs> so 
So, in the, I mean, it seems to be that what manas, I think, as I recall, manas actually comes from a root that means to measure. And, and so when you're sizing yourself up relative to another person, you're just doing the, you're, you're just doing the wrong thing that under, undermines your, your, your sense of, um, well, your contentment and also potentially the contentment of the person that you're sizing yourself up against. And I, 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 one time I was, I was trying to understand better um, what the world is like to, to somebody who's, who's been brought up indoctrinated with uh, Catholic, Catholic uh, catechism. And so I, I read a catechism, a fairly thick catechism. It was, a, I think it was called a catechism for adults by a Jesuit. And, and, um, and I, I, I read the in, entire thing all the way through. And I was really struck by one um, description of spiritual pride. And, and it's, um, it said something that it first just struck me as kind of odd that someone would say this, but it was um, saying that seeing yourself as a victim is is a form of spiritual pride. Seeing yourself as someone that, that other people look down upon is a form of spiritual pride. And it's much more obvious that if you think, well, everybody thinks I'm great, that that would be pride, you know, but also saying everybody thinks that I'm a piece of shit is also <laughs> a kind of pride um and 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 i think it's 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 partly because it's just the focus is entirely on on yourself and and there there may be a kind of implicit way of um when you say that i i'm you know i'm i'm a that everybody looks down on me it may be a, a kind of covert way of saying everybody else is so stupid that they that they don't see how great i am you know yeah, but well, it, it's it's also a kind of way of making one special in some way, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, even, even though it's a perverse way of doing it, um, yeah. and so one that I have fallen victim to uh, myself. Uh, but yeah, it, it, and above all, it's a it's a very inward-looking narrative, I guess. So it's about me rather than about engaging um, with the world. Yeah, but the, yeah, the the idea of yeah, so why is everyone so horrible to me? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, um, which I, I, I guess must very rarely be true. Uh, that 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 it could be like that. Yeah. Um, I, right. Right now, in, in in my life, I I just happen to have a lot of people that I that I deal with on a practically a daily basis who are um, as old as I am, or, or in many cases older. And and uh, a number of these people are really facing, um, you know, deterioration of their health, um, sometimes developing cognitive impairment. And um, something that I've, that I've noticed is, is that when people are really um, in a lot of physical pain or having, you know, have a disease, they they become really quite self-absorbed, you know. I mean, and 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 I and I have have begun to think that that that's a very natural thing to do when when think when 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 your body is really falling apart, you naturally become very concerned about that, and it's it almost takes all of your attention, and so you can't really pay much attention to anything outside. And it's you know, it's it's a remarkable person, I think, who doesn't succumb to that sort of self-absorption when they're when they're suffering and it's just sort of seeing that happen to people that i that i know around me has 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 um has 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 really 
muted my tendency to be judgmental, I suppose, you know. I mean, I mean, I think there was there might have been a time in my life when I when my natural re response was, you know, why is this person who's suffering from cancer? Why can't they t think of anything besides their own their own cancer? You know, or, um, wh why is it? Why is it that people who are being bombed in, in U Ukraine aren't very concerned about what's going on in Africa? <laughs> So something like that. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's 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 a. Uh, it, it it is interesting. I mean, the 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 question that you were that you were asking initially, this sort of got us onto this is is how is it that um, the kind of analysis that we're encountering in Waldron's presentation of the Pali Canon and eventually his presentation of Yogacara, how is that helping practically in the in the in the Buddhist project of overcoming suffering and being you know developing wisdom and compassion and i think i think that's a question to to keep open as as we as we continue reading reading this book um I, you know I, I i think that i i i'm now that now that you've raised it in 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 such an explicit form i'm really kind of interested in seeing how how it is that waldron will try to tie this together and say well if you if you can develop the habit of seeing the world in this polycanonical way or this yogacharic way, uh, it'll help you on the project of being more wise and compassionate. I'm interested to see how he ties that all together. Yeah, right, great. Um, so, I mean, we're coming towards the end of it today. I just want to mention that there was a particular citation from the Pali Canon that I really liked. Uh, and when I read it first, I wasn't sure where it was from and whether it was from the Diamond Sutra or something like that. And then it turns out to be from the Samyutta Nikaya um, uh, and this is on page 69 so the the the, the question is uh, uh, or the, the 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 citation is form is like a mass of foam and feeling but an airy bubble perception is like a mirage and formations a plantain tree consciousness is a magic show a juggler's trick entire so i kind of really like those metaphors uh, and that way of kind of trying to indicate the illusoriness of the the concepts that we create i mean in this case the five skandhas right of, uh, thinking about what is happening uh, and what we are um yeah. that quite mysterious and engaging that the, those yeah. series uh, images and I and, and I think that that yeah that that quotation is also one that, that really uh, jumped out at me it was really quite a quite a uh, it, it, you're right it does sound very much like like the diamond diamond cutter sutra you know form is like a massive foam and feeling like an airy bubble consciousness is a magic show a juggler's trick entire that's that's quite a uh, quite an interesting uh, analogy bunch of images and we can ask about that how does taking that kind of quotation seriously help in the project of having more wisdom and compassion 